0: All right. Good morning, guys. It is good to see you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Grant. I am one of the pastors here at H2O. And uh, man, I just, I, I'm, I'm thankful for a lot in my life. You know, we just had uh, Thanksgiving. You guys all have good Thanksgiving? Yeah? Okay. I hope that y'all were able to celebrate Thanksgiving on so, some way. I know uh, some people have family in town, some people don't. Obviously, a lot of our people are away with family right now. Um, but I, I love the fact that our country takes uh, this time every year to just sit back and, and think for a little bit about what it is that we're thankful for. Um, man, if we could be people that make a regular practice of that, we didn't just do it in November or December on the holidays, but if you would make a regular practice of being thankful, I think your life would be entirely different. I really do. Uh, this, this really has pretty much nothing to do with my message, but it's for free. Um, just, just honestly... Um, Living with an attitude of gratitude, living with with thankfulness, will make um, a huge, huge difference in your life. And um, I especially think that's true when it comes to persevering through difficult things. If you can be thankful for what you do have, that will help you a lot. And as you remember what you're thankful for, remember who is it that gives those gifts, right? Like God is the one that gives all good gifts. James chapter one verse seventeen says, "Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights." With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We have a God that is good and he loves to give good things. And uh, I was thinking, just what are some of the things that I'm really thankful for uh, in my life? And first off, I'm thankful for my wife. You just heard her cough there behind the curtain. Um, She's great, even though she did get me sick. If my voice sounds a little bit different, that's why. Um, Nonetheless, I'm still thankful for her. She's an awesome woman. Um, uh, thankful for uh, my family. Thankful for the family I inherited by Mary and Cassie as well. Um, yeah, they're sweet. I, I am uh, thankful for God's constant provision. You know, you think about how God, uh, we, we don't even think about that so much. Just how he takes care of us constantly. You know, I, I never wake up in the morning and wonder how I'm going to eat. You know, I go to bed every night um, in a bed and, or, or on the couch a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> Under a roof, whatever, you know, my, my, my needs are consistently taken care of. Um, I'm thankful for you guys, everyone. I'm thankful to be a part of a church uh, that loves Jesus, you know, and it's like, I realize I'm a pastor of this church, but I, I benefit so much from you guys, too, you know, like we are one community that's pursuing Christ together, and the authentic way that you guys love Jesus pushes me as well and encourages me as well. So like, um, I'm just super thankful to be a part of that, that our church is not just a social gathering on Sunday mornings, uh, but it's a family of people that really love Christ and that, that push each other on. It's, it's such a huge blessing in my life. Um, I'm thankful for my staff team. I get to work with the coolest people on earth. Um, hopefully you guys will have as cool of uh, coworkers as I do someday. Maybe you can join staff and then you will. Um, but Now, I'm thankful for my good health most of the time, uh, even though uh, it's not tip-top right now. For the most part, it's it's usually pretty good. Uh, But uh, aside from all those things, I could go on and on. Most of all, I I truly am most thankful for my relationship with God. And all those other things, as wonderful as they are, they they could be here today and gone tomorrow. There's there's no guarantee that I'm going to keep any of those things. Uh, I could be removed from this community, my wife could die, I could uh, lose my good health, whatever, all these kind of things can pass away, but the one thing that can't is my relationship with the Lord, and that's been made possible through Jesus Christ. And so I am thankful, not only that I have that relationship with God, but that he wants me to be his child. I think that's another thing that we take for granted sometimes, too. We talk all the time about being saved by grace, but do we really understand what that means? Like, when we say we're saved by grace, we're saying we literally don't deserve heaven, Like, I think most of us, we say that we believe we're saved by grace, but we actually function from a default that humans deserve heaven. But if you say that you're saved by grace, that means you're functioning from a default that humans deserve hell and separation from God, and that it's by his grace that we're saved. And man, what an amazing God we have, that he wants us to be his children, that he wants us to live for eternity with him. I'm thankful that He made that possible, as Kyle talked about last week by dying on the cross, that Jesus went and died on the cross that my sins could be paid for. I'm thankful that God is both just and merciful, and that I know He doesn't just let sin run rampant, and that He is going to do away with all that, and that He punished sin, but He did so on the cross, and that He made a substitute for me to be able to be forgiven. And I'm thankful that although Jesus went to the grave for me, that He didn't stay there. Man, I simply put, I am thankful for the resurrection the resurrection is one of the most significant parts of our faith if not I, paul literally said our faith is worthless without it if there's no resurrection and uh you know, Kyle talked some last week about how the crucifixion was the most significant event in human history. I, I, would, I, I think that's accurate, um, but I would, I would amend it a little bit and say the crucifixion and resurrection, you have to see them together as one unit, okay? Uh, the two of them work together to literally change our fortunes in the greatest way possible. You see, if we only have the crucifixion but we have no resurrection, then we have a dead God, we have no hope for the future, and we have no victory over sin and death. At the end of the day, Jesus would be just another man that, although he did great miracles and had great teachings, died just like everyone else and showed that he was subject to the same curse that all the rest of us are that comes from sin, which is death. And we see that all the way back in Genesis. God warned, if you eat from this tree, you will die. And that is what has happened ever since. The curse of sin is death. So if all we have is the crucifixion we have no resurrection, then we have a dead God and we have no hope. However, in order to have the resurrection, you have to have the crucifixion first, right? And that's why Jesus was constantly talking about, hey, I'm going to have to go die. That's why he was sweating blood in the garden, knowing what was about to happen. That's why he didn't defend himself on trial against Pilate, because he knew in order for this to happen, in order for me to overcome the curse of sin and death, I have to experience it first. And so that's why he went to the cross to take on sin. That's why he died in the flesh, but he rose again, showing that he beat it. And so... Today, uh, I get to talk about the, 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 this great miracle that we call the resurrection. It's actually the reason that we're meeting today rather than yesterday. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish Sabbath was actually Saturday. That was the day uh, that Jesus was used to worshiping on and, and the rest of the disciples. The reason we meet on Sundays is because it's the day of the resurrection. And that, that event was so huge and so significant that Christians were like, we're going to meet on that day, actually. Every day as we meet, we're going to gather uh, every week to remember what an amazing thing it was that God did, that he rose from dead. That's why we're worshiping today on Sunday. So... Um, if you've been with us for this semester, you know we've been going through this series, Who is This Man? We've been looking at the most significant events in the life of Jesus, helping us to understand who he is. Well, today as we look at the resurrection, I feel like there are very few events, if any other event, uh, that can compare to how much the resurrection tells us about Jesus. So uh, let's pray. Let's ask God to be with us as we dive into the scripture this morning, and then uh, we'll get into it. God, you are awesome. You're awesome, Lord, and we, uh, we sit before you, God. We are in awe of you. Lord, we pray that uh, we would just have a holy reverence for you, Lord. God, we pray that we would be struck by you, that we would um, just be enamored with your beauty. God, I pray that uh, you would quiet our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would remove any distractions from us. God, we pray that Satan would not be welcome in this place, God, we pray for clear minds to be able to take in the word. God, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts. We pray that you'd speak to our minds. We pray that you would transform us, that you would bring us closer to you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would do that through your word and that you would do that through me as I speak about it. God, let my words be yours. May you be lifted up this morning. We love you, God. It's in your son's awesome name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 27. We're actually going to start in verse 57, we're going to to start looking at the burial of Jesus first, because we have to understand the burial to really get all the implications of the resurrection. Um, But just to let you know kind of what my goals are for this morning, um, I kind of have this sermon broken up into three sections. First, I want to help you just understand what it is that happened. So we're going to read the account of the resurrection. I want you simply to learn about what it is that happened. And then after that, I, wanna, I want you to leave here convinced that it actually did happen. Uh, let, let's face this. If you read a story that tells you that a man rose from the dead, that's usually a story you're not gonna believe, right? Like we don't see people raised from the dead that often. Um, So if we have a story that's making a claim like this, my hope is that not only will we read it, but I can help you to understand why this is actually a very convincing and true event that we can believe and we can trust took place. And then finally, I want us to respond. I want you to see, okay, how is it that I should live in response to this incredible event that actually did happen in history? So, Uh, With that, let's go to Matthew 27, verse 57. We're going to read about the burial of Jesus. This takes place right after uh, Jesus has been crucified. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb. Which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there, facing the tomb. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell people he has been raised from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. All right. Um, So we, we pick up here. This is Friday evening. Jesus has just been crucified. If you remember what we've been talking about previously, I'll just kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, Friday morning, Jesus kind of went through a kangaroo court, a trial, uh, even though he wasn't guilty. Uh, he was proclaimed uh, guilty. Pilate, who was the Roman governor, uh, didn't actually want to crucify him, but his hand was kind of forced because the Jews were going to riot if they didn't crucify him. So he gives in to their request. Jesus is murdered on the cross. And now crucifixion, as Kyle was explaining a little bit last week, uh, was actually a really gruesome and really long process. Uh, It might have taken somebody a couple days sometimes to die from crucifixion. But Jesus had gone through so many severe beatings beforehand, he had already lost an incredible amount of blood by the time that he got to the cross. And he was stabbed with a spear while he was on the cross. So he actually died pretty quickly. Uh, He died the same day that he was put up. And uh, with that, this guy named Joseph, who was a rich man, uh, wants to to bury Jesus properly, and he wants to do it before the Sabbath starts, which would be Saturday night. Um, Saturday, which starts Friday night. Their days started in the evenings. Um, So he goes to Pilate, and he says, hey, can I have the body? And Pilate says, sure, why why not give you the body? Now, uh, if you were a prisoner that was uh, executed by Rome, you actually lost your right to have a proper burial, Um, But it makes sense that Pilate would be willing to give this body up for Joseph, one, because Joseph was an influential and rich man, Uh, but two, because remember, Pilate really didn't want to crucify Jesus in the first place, Uh, so if there's anything that he could do to kind of make some sort of amends by at least giving him a proper burial, it's likely that he would have been willing to do that. So anyway, this guy named Joseph comes and uh, asks for the body of Jesus. Now we haven't really been introduced to this guy yet in scripture, so I want to fill us in a little bit about who he is. Uh, His name is Joseph. He's from Arimathea, which is a town that's about 15 to 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, The text tells us that he's rich. Okay, And I think that this is interesting because we see a lot about poor people following Jesus, right? We know Jesus himself was poor. The disciples were poor. Here we get an image of a rich guy that had actually become a disciple of Jesus. And we get a good opportunity to see how he was, although he was rich, he was using his money and his resources in a way that glorified God. And so I think that Joseph is a good example for us. Some of you guys may go on to make a lot of money someday. But notice how Joseph uh, held his possessions with an open hand. He was a rich guy. He had his own tomb. And he decides to give that up and give it to Jesus, okay? If, if the Lord decides to, to bless you guys with a job, you make a lot of money, whatever it may be, uh, I hope that you take notes from Joseph and you realize whatever resources it is that God has given me, they're, they're here for his kingdom, okay? And so Joseph is a rich man. He had become a disciple of Jesus and uh, he decides to give his tomb up for God so Jesus can be buried there. Um, Now, we also see that he had uh, become a disciple of Jesus. This doesn't mean that he was one of the 12. This guy was not one of the apostles that walked around. Disciple just means follower. So over time, Joseph had obviously become convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah. Now, Joseph was a man uh, that was very educated (coughs) in the scriptures. And uh, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us this, but in Mark's gospel, we see Joseph was actually a member of the Sanhedrin Now, the Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. So these were guys that knew the law really, really well. Matter of fact, this is the same court that they gathered together in the night to condemn Jesus and said that he was guilty of blasphemy. There were, I think it was 71 or 72 guys on this court. So obviously, by and large, they condemned Jesus, but it seems like there were one or two that probably didn't, Joseph being one of them. Now, I think this is remarkable that Joseph became a disciple of Jesus, even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he knew the law. He, he was expecting Messiah. And so I, I believe that Joseph's heart was open in a way that he was willing to search the scriptures and to see, hey, Jesus is actually lining up with everything we should be looking for, despite the fact that a lot of his friends feared Jesus simply because they didn't want to lose their earthly power. But I also think that, uh, that Joseph is a very courageous man. And if you read this in, in Mark's gospel, it actually says that Joseph worked up the courage to go ask Pilate for the body. And I want you to think about the situation that Joseph was in here. Uh, First off, he's been through a rough night, right? It's been a rough day for him. It says he's become a disciple of Jesus. He watched all of his co-workers um, shout for an innocent man to be crucified, all because of their earthly lust for power. He watches all this stuff, powerless to do anything about it. He watches Jesus get crucified, and the accompanying signs that happened, the crucifixion, could only have uh, served to further his faith that Jesus really was the Son of God. And after all of this, he works up the courage. He says, I need to go ask Pilate for the body. Jesus at least honors, deserves to be honored and being buried the right way. Now think about what Joseph is sacrificing. Not only is he giving up his own tomb that I'm sure costs a lot of money, but he's going against all of his co-workers and deciding to identify himself with Jesus, He was willing to become an outcast because of his love for Christ. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from Joseph in that for us today. Is man, some of you guys are in positions where you know if I go public with my faith about Jesus, I'm going to become an outcast where I am. Maybe you work in a field where you know nobody else there is a Christian. At your office, maybe. No one else there is a Christian your study group, your learning community, whatever. No one else is a Christian. Matter of fact, I hear them make fun of Christians sometimes, and if they know that I'm a Christian, what are they going to do to me? Well, Joseph was undoubtedly in the same spot, except it was worse than making fun of. His coworkers. were literally the ones that wanted to murder Jesus, but he works up the courage and says, I'm going to go do this because it's the right thing to do, and remember, he doesn't even know Jesus is going to raise from the dead. He's just trying to give this guy a proper burial, So I think that there's a lot that we can learn from his example. I pray that we'd be people that have the same kind of courage, that say, I believe in Jesus. I'm willing to identify myself with him no matter what the cost, no matter if my family thinks I'm weird, no matter if my coworkers think I'm weird, no matter if my classmates or the other people in my dorm room think I'm weird, I'm going to identify with Jesus. So Joseph takes the body of Jesus and lays it in his own tomb. Now, this is also really interesting, because a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about Isaiah 53, and this was prophesied as well. I told you it's almost creepy how accurate Isaiah prophesies what would happen to Jesus. And remember, this prophecy in Isaiah is written hundreds of years before the events of the crucifixion happened, but look at what it says in Isaiah 53, 9. It's talking about this suffering servant that would die for Israel. It says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because think about Jesus. How did he die? He was crucified. Now, why would you get crucified? Crucifixion was uh, the death penalty that the Romans gave for criminals. Jesus was killed as a criminal between wicked men. He was actually hung between two thieves. And so he was assigned with wicked men in his grave. Yet, he was a rich man in his death. Where did Jesus get buried? In the tomb of a rich man. It's really interesting, right? I, just, I think it's awesome how uh, you can see things like that. This, literally, that's written hundreds of years beforehand. Those two thieves that, that were crucified between them, I'm sure they didn't go get buried in rich men's tombs, but Jesus did. So anyway, uh, Jesus is laid in this tomb, giant stone is rolled across it, and with that, as the, as the sun is blocked out from the tomb, you have to feel the utter despair that must have been there for his followers, people that had put all their hope in Jesus. Think about what the disciples had left to follow this man. Think about what Joseph is going to have to go back to now. Is he going to lose his spot on the Sanhedrin? I don't know. The, the women that were there watching this, uh, that, that loved Jesus dearly, weeping as this is happening, it seems like all hope is lost. You know, some of you guys have lost friends before. You know what it's like to lose somebody that you love. Not only did they lose a dear friend, it was so much more. This was a guy that they thought was God's anointed Messiah, that was going to be a savior of some kind, and it looks like all hope is lost. So with this, that's Friday night, Saturday morning, the the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and they're like, hey, we remember that this guy said he was going to rise from the dead. So just to make extra sure that this doesn't happen, we don't think it's going to happen, but just to make extra sure, give us some guards and we'll guard the tomb." And Pilate's like, sure. I can only imagine how ready Pilate was to be done with this whole ordeal, right? Like, he didn't want to crucify him in the first place, whatever. If I can put this whole thing to bed, I'm going to do it. Sure, take some guards, guard the tomb, and a couple days I'll be done with. I'm never going to have to think about Jesus again. It's probably what's going through Pilate's mind. So he gives them these guards, and they go and guard the tomb. All right. Uh, With that, we're going to pick up... um, Oh, one last thing, though. I I do think this is kind of funny. um, Is that the guards were sitting there guarding a dead body, okay? Have you guys ever had anybody guard you before to protect your life? Probably not. Maybe you've had a dog that's done that for you. Um, But Jesus was so important that his dead body was being guarded by people. Um, I just think that's interesting. But anyway, you get the the idea. Jesus is dead in the grave. We're in a state of utter and total despair. So let's pick up the story. We're gonna go to Matthew chapter 28, verse one. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priest had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. Okay, so you can only imagine uh, the, the situation that these women were in. By the way, it says Mary and the other Mary. Uh, I, there, everyone in the Bible seems to be named Mary at this time. Uh, there's not even the Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. It's Mary the mother of uh, one of the other disciples, I think. So there's a lot of Marys. But regardless, there's, there's uh, these, these two women... They witnessed the burial of Jesus, so they definitely knew where the tomb was, right? We read about when the stone was being rolled there; they were there, they were weeping, they were seeing this happen, and now they go back. Now, why is it that they were going to view the tomb? Uh, Matthew's gospel doesn't give us as much uh, uh, detail on this, but we know from the other gospels that they were going, they had had brought some uh, spices and and some uh, perfumes basically it was a way to go and honor Jesus. Uh, it's not likely that they were going with the expectation to see that Jesus had rose from the dead. Uh, now they should have been expecting that because Jesus talked about it. The Pharisees knew they talked about it, uh, but it seems that the disciples of Jesus were so disheartened right now, including all the followers of Jesus, including these women, uh, were probably disheartened to the point where they weren't really expecting that, but they at least wanted to honor Jesus uh, by, by going and doing this burial procedure for him. So they go there and uh, Sure enough, as they get there, they they witness something incredible. Uh, It was literally an an earthquake, the stone rolling away, an angel coming down, the guards running off, and they get to go in and they see the empty tomb of Jesus. Man, I can only imagine, right? When it it talks about how they they had both fear and great joy. You can think like how both those emotions would be mixing them right now. Like, what is going on? Am I losing my mind? I'm really scared. I've never seen an angel before this is weird. Uh, I just saw these Roman guards run away like dead men. Yet at the same time, I have great joy because what if what they're saying is true? Like, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I think this is remarkable, actually, that God chose to let these humble women witness the resurrection first. You know, a lot of people sometimes falsely say that the Bible is anti-woman or that, that God is like against women or something like that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Who, who are the first people that the Lord allows to witness the resurrection? Women, right? And this is actually something that, would, that gives us more evidence of knowing uh, that this isn't a false account, by the way, because if somebody was making this up, they would never make women as the first people to see the resurrection. Why? Because the testimony of women in that day was considered to be worthless, So why would you write a fake story that says, oh yeah, the women were the first one to find him? That's a good way to get people not to believe you in this culture. But if that's what actually happened, then that's how they're going to record it, is what happened. And so God gives this incredible blessing on these humble women that they would get to be the first ones to see uh, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They get to go and see the empty tomb, and then as they're going to tell the disciples, they get to actually see Jesus himself. Now, the the last part of this passage, uh, we read about this cover-up story that the the Jewish leaders decide, and they're like, okay, once again, you, you see how hardened they are in their unbelief, right? Look at all the miracles Jesus was working. He was gaining so much popularity. Why? Because his miracles were validating him, right? But rather than, than seeing that this man really was a man of God, they decided we can't lose our power. We don't want to lose our nation. We don't want to get in trouble with the Romans. Let's kill him instead. So we saw they had very, very hard hearts. Uh, they, they literally even seen and heard about this guy raising someone from the dead, which he'd done with Lazarus. And, and their hearts were so hard that that was actually the straw that broke the camel's back where they're like, we've got to kill him. Okay, so now something even more incredible happens. He raises himself from the dead. And their hearts are still so hard that rather than turning and believing, they decide, well, we've got to come up with a story. And so the story they come up with is really, really lame, uh, which is basically, oh, let's say that you guys fell asleep and uh, they came and stole the body while you guys were asleep. Okay, that's a terrible cover-up, and I'll get to why that is in a second. But uh, Given the, the false story that that the false narrative that's uh, promoted here, I want to kind of transition my sermon now into this spot of belief. of what are all the evidences we have for why we can believe that this is an account that actually happened, right? Because the chief priests and the Pharisees, they didn't believe that this is something that actually happened, and they created some false explanation that has a lot of holes in it, and people have done that ever since uh, that, that can't get around the resurrection of Jesus. So there's all these theories out there that people come up with to try and debunk the idea that the resurrection happened. None of them hold water, okay? But I'm going to go and, and just kind of give you... I think that it is very, very reliable for us to believe that the resurrection of Jesus did actually happen. Okay, and the the first thing that points to this is is the empty tomb. We'll just start there because that's what we've already been talking about. The the fact that the tomb remained empty and that nobody was able to produce the body gives great uh, credibility to the resurrection happening. Why? Well, the, the Jews. Had there was there was a lot of incentive to produce the body. Okay? The Jews had great incentive to produce it. Why? Because they want to stamp out this whole Jesus follower thing as fast as they can, right? That's what they were trying to do with the crucifixion. Now remember, this story about the resurrection is spreading only a couple days after. So it's not like it's it came up ten years later and the body was decayed and nobody could go produce it. Like it's right away that this starts happening. So the easy fix is go to the tomb, find the body, show everyone Jesus is dead, his body's right here. And that would nip the whole thing in the bud. There, there is no such thing as Christianity that ever develops. Um, but they're unable to do that. So, so the Jews, although they have great incentive to do it, can't do it. Remember, the Romans also have incentive to do this. Why? Why? Well, remember, Pilate agreed to the whole thing about putting the guards at the tomb. Pilate wants to be done with this Jesus thing. He never wants to hear about it again. He wants to put this in the rearview mirror. Uh, So the Romans, who would have the authority to go and and dig up the tomb and and produce the body as well, uh, can't do it. So no one is able to produce this body. It's it's a historical fact that the tomb was empty, okay? As a matter of fact, the, the Jews wouldn't even try to dispute this. That's why they had to come up with the false claim that it was stolen, because they knew that they couldn't produce the body. So we have to look at their claim of, all right, well, yeah, maybe that's the simple explanation. The disciples came and stole the body. Well, wait a second. That story literally makes no sense. And here's why. First off, there's a lot of things logistically that don't work with their story. Um, How is it that these guards could have been in such a deep sleep while they were on guard duty that as they were rolling away this massive stone that they didn't wake up? I mean, that in and of itself is is completely unbelievable, okay? Like, falling asleep on the job is bad enough. Falling asleep on the job as a massive stone is rolled out of the way to steal a body from a tomb is completely inexcusable, okay? Um, So so first off, that makes no sense. Uh, Second, uh, even if they were able to roll the stone away somehow, and the soldiers really were asleep, if they were asleep, how do they have any idea what went on? You can't say, oh, while I was asleep, they stole the body. Well, how do you know what happened while you were asleep? um and then finally the uh the disciples remember they were cowards when the the trial happened like literally Jesus is arrested and they all scatter Peter denies him three times and and Jesus was still alive at that time he could have pulled something out of his back pocket at this point Jesus is actually dead how is it that they would get more courage all of a sudden now that Jesus is dead to go and steal the body and the other thing is, literally, the disciples have no incentive to go and steal the body. What are they going to do with that? Like, like, why would they go and preach this message that Jesus rose from the dead if they knew it was a lie? Okay? Like, even if it was just like to troll or something, I could get maybe a little bit. I still don't really get risking your life to like bypass guards and steal a body just to troll. But even if that was the case, maybe. Um... But this was much more than a troll, right? Like, they were doing this and they literally went and spent the rest of their lives going and preaching this message that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if they had been the guys that went and stole this body, why would they devote the rest of their lives preaching something that they know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is a lie, right? Like, people will die for lies sometimes. You can find martyrs of many different religions and many different philosophies, but When that happens, it's always because somebody has convinced that person that what they're dying for is true, okay? So even though it may not be true, the person is completely convinced that it is. Now, the the situation you have here with the disciples is that there would be no way to convince them that it's true if they were the ones that stole the dead body, right? Like, they would have to know it was a lie. Maybe they could get other people to be martyred, but for them to be martyred themselves Wouldn't make any sense. So why is it that these guys would transform from cowards all the way to people that were that gave their lives and suffered greatly for the gospel? You want to know what they got uh, for for preaching Jesus? This is what happened to the disciples. We don't get uh, most of them. We don't get material on this biblically, but this is coming from other historical accounts about what happened with the disciples. Uh, Peter was crucified for preaching Jesus. He was actually crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to be killed the same way his Savior was. Andrew, crucified. Uh, The apostle James was beheaded. Philip was crucified. Um, Bartholomew, we're not as sure about. There's a couple of conflicting stories. Uh, You can take your pick. Some say that he was crucified. Others say that he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Um, Thomas, he was killed by a spear, uh, and that was while he was in India preaching the gospel. Matthew uh, was literally stabbed in the back while he was in Ethiopia preaching the gospel. Um, James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then beaten to death. Thaddeus was also crucified. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Uh, The Apostle John was the only one of the remaining 11 uh, that was not martyred, but he was exiled and lived out the rest of his life on an island called Patmos. And there's some that say he was actually boiled alive, but he survived. it. Then they exiled him to Patmos. But uh, what you can see here is that all of the disciples went through incredible pain, incredible suffering, and ultimately death. Why? Because the consistent message that they preached was the resurrection. I challenge you, read the book of Acts. See how much they talk about the resurrection. Read the, read the uh, 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 letters throughout the rest of the New Testament. See how much they talk about the resurrection. The resurrection was the central message that the apostles preached as they went about preaching Christianity. And there is no explanation for why they would suffer in this way for something they knew was a lie. The idea that they stole the body is simply just not tenable in any way whatsoever. I don't know of anything that could possibly convince people on this level that Jesus had raised from the dead unless they truly saw it. Now, in my opinion, the transformed life of the apostles is probably the most convincing argument for the resurrection, but in case that's not enough for you, I can give you some other ones as well. Um, The two things I want to say here, just about kind of even accepting the premise of the idea that the resurrection could happen is an important thing to do, because This is the problem we run into, especially here in our Western culture. We're so logical and thought-oriented, which is good. I'm a logical and thought-oriented person. I'm not against that. Um, But because we trust so much in science, I think that we almost discount the supernatural and and don't even give it a chance to say that there's any way that something supernatural could happen. And so we start from a default position of saying this is impossible, let me think of other ways that can happen. I think that's a false place to start, here's why. First off, miracles definitely happen. There is no way to deny that miracles happen. I don't care uh, how much of a skeptic you are, and here's why. You are partaking in one. It's called life, right? Like, by definition, our universe is a miracle. A miracle is something that cannot be explained. There's no possible natural explanation for it, and it's a good thing. Guess what? That's what creation is. No one has any possible explanation for life. It is by definition a miracle. Now you can say, hey, we'll figure it out someday, whatever. But the reality is we all get to witness this one miracle. You might say, oh, I've never seen somebody raised from the dead. I've never seen a blind man healed. I've never seen a deaf person get their hearing back. I've never seen a paralyzed man walk. Yeah, but you've seen life. And and that's the one miracle that we all get to partake in. All of us are part of that miracle. All of us get to see that miracle. So so I would uh, encourage you to to not always just start from a default of saying, there's no way that a miracle can happen because you're living one. Now, uh, the other thing that I would say about this is like, uh, maybe you're one of those people that says, oh, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. I I only believe things I see. That's not true. Please don't ever say, I only believe things I see. Most of what you believe, you believe because somebody told you. Okay, and you may say, no, 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 that's not true. Yeah, it is true, because you don't have the time to observe, uh, to to gather all the information that you believe. Like, you have to trust other people's observations, right? Uh, for, For example, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? I would assume every person in this room believes that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Why, were you there on his inauguration day? Did you see it? Did you visit George in the White House? No. You didn't. So did you see the news footage? No, you didn't. Okay, why is it that you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Well, quite simply, you believe on testimony. Somebody told you that it happened, and you believe. Now, you can say, Grant, that's a dangerous road to go down because somebody could tell you anything. All of a sudden, you believe it. Yeah, it is dangerous to just believe anything you hear. So, so how do we know when we should believe something that somebody tells us versus when we shouldn't believe something that someone tells us? Well, it comes down to what is the credibility of the person telling us, and then how much does their story make sense? What's the credibility of the story? Are there supporting facts around this? The reason that you believe George Washington is the first president of the United States is because we have a lot of sources historically that we can go back to that will all confirm that Jesus, uh, sorry, that George Washington, that would be awesome if Jesus was our first president. But... Um, you have a lot of sources that you can go back to, and you can see, oh yeah, George Washington was the first president of the United States. There's credible testimony here. The story makes sense. These sources are, are collaborating with each other. All of this comes together to where I say, yeah, I, I believe that. This is credible testimony. So much of what you believe, you believe off of credible testimony. You'd be amazed. You think that you believe only off of observations, but a lot of what you believe, you believe because someone told you, because it was a trustworthy person that told it to you. So... Uh, with that being said, the, the question for us then really becomes not just, okay, uh, well, I can believe in miracles, I should believe that miracles can happen at least, and I, I now can accept the idea that, yeah, it's okay to believe something just because somebody told me, so long as that's a credible witness. Um, now we just have to say, okay, is the Bible a credible witness? The stories that we have, are they credible? And my answer overwhelmingly is yes, yes. Uh, we already talked about the disciples being martyred. Generally, that's a good way to, to test credibility is, is how, how much is somebody willing to stand for what they believe in, right? If someone's willing to die for the very thing that they say is true, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but that lends credibility to it, especially if it's an eyewitness, right? So somebody saying, I'm willing to die uh, for my belief that, uh, in Islam or something is different from the, the disciples saying, I'm willing to, to die for my eyewitness testimony that I saw Jesus rise from the dead, so that, that's pretty credible. Um, another really credible witness that we have is Saul, mostly known as Paul. Um, his conversion is an incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you explain such a transformed life of a man? He was a zealous persecutor of Christians. What is it that transformed him to become the greatest missionary that this world has ever seen? It makes no sense. He was literally going to persecute Christians when he had an encounter with Jesus, was radically transformed, and then went around planting churches like a crazy man. Like, how do you explain that kind of thing to happen? And by the way, that is a historical fact that that happened, okay? Now, you can disagree about what Paul believed, but it is a historical fact that there was a man named Saul of Tarsus who was a Pharisee that persecuted Christians who had a dramatic conversion, and and the the witness... uh, the, the. uh, things that speak testimony to him going around and preaching Jesus were all these churches that he planted. We have good historical record of that. So whether or not you want to believe that Jesus really is the reason for why Paul did that, you have to do something with the fact that this happened to that guy. Okay? You have to do something with the fact that the disciples were all radically transformed and martyred for their faith. Now, maybe you sit there and you say, well, maybe they were all just on, like, they had some crazy hallucination. Like maybe they, they liked to, to, I don't know, do mushrooms or something, and they had this crazy vision. Like, they really wanted Jesus to be alive, and so, like, they just had this crazy hallucination, and, and they saw Jesus, and that's what did it. Okay. Maybe. But I would say to this, first off, group hallucinations are not a thing. Okay? You could talk to any psychiatrist, psychologist, they'll tell you hallucinations are an intensely personal thing that happens. So for all 11 disciples— To have the same hallucination is not a realistic idea. That can't happen. Uh, The other thing is the disciples in their testimony clearly show it wasn't a hallucination. Why? We see Jesus doing several things physically. Uh, There's an account where he literally eats a piece of fish, okay? A ghost can't eat a piece of fish. Like, where is it going to go, right? Um, Thomas puts his hands in the wounds of Jesus, touches his body physically. Uh, this, this can't be a hallucination. And is this hallucination so powerful that it can transform the men in the way that it did? All 11 of them, plus Saul, plus all the other martyrs that ended up dying for Jesus. You know, Jesus appeared to more than just these guys. Paul talks in Corinthians about how he appeared to some 400 others. So there's a, a lot that's going on here. And you have to say, are they all tripping that bad that, that Christianity comes out of that That's not a very realistic explanation either. I mean, frankly, that's a miracle just as much as the resurrection is a miracle. Um, The other thing you have to deal with is is just the the spread of Christianity. Um, The spread of Christianity makes no sense apart from the resurrection. Now, uh, as I said, the resurrection was the linchpin of their message. It's not some legend that was tacked on later. This is the immediate thing that they started preaching was that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that you have forgiveness of sins in him. Now, how is it that this message spreads so quickly and so effectively? First off, it's crazy. They're saying that a man rose from the dead. That is not naturally a good way to get somebody to believe your message, is to make a claim like that. Um, so, So that's one thing that's against them. Second, the Jews were actively opposed to this message. And remember, where this started, which was in Jerusalem, The Jews had a lot of power, okay? And so where this message starts to to branch out from, there's great uh, desire for the people there to stamp it out. Um, So it's kind of a crazy message. The Jews are opposed to them. The Romans started opposing them as well. It didn't take too long for the Roman government to start opposing Christianity forcefully, and Christians started being killed consistently by the Roman government as well. Also, their message didn't really have any reason to spread outside of it being true. It's not like they were uh, preaching like a prosperity gospel or something. Uh, you see that take on a lot of followers. You see a lot of these prosperity preachers gain a lot of following pretty quickly. Um, but, but these preachers, the apostles, didn't appeal to things of the flesh the same way that the uh, prosperity preachers were. Uh, their, their message was, hey, come, come and die. Come deny yourself. Come follow Jesus. Come be stoned. Come be put in prison. Come be martyred. Um, Outside of that message being true, there's not much reason for why people wanted to accept it, yet they did in droves. Also, they didn't use violence to spread their message, uh, which has been a, a typical way for religions to spread. Now, you might say, oh, Grant, what about the Crusades? What about, you know, the Spanish Inquisition? And what about all these? Okay, you know what? All that stuff happened hundreds and hundreds of years after this time. That's not what I'm talking about. Christianity never used violence to spread for at least the first 300 years of its existence. Okay? After that, the state started to get involved and and there started to become corrupt people that did terrible, sinful things in the name of Christianity, but that doesn't speak for the religion itself. Christianity had already grown to an incredible power by that time, so much so that it's likely Constantine accepted Christianity, maybe because he had a legitimate conversion, or maybe because he realized this is the best way for me to control my population because they're all starting to follow Jesus. Okay? So, the uh, the fact that this message started to spread so powerfully is is really an enigma on some level you can't really come up with a good reason for why this message had any credibility or how it would survive outside of the fact that God was behind it and so you know what else we see in Acts we see a lot of miracles we see preaching that's accompanied by powerful signs of God We see, as I said before, Paul talked about how Jesus appeared to some 400 other believers. So there are a lot of people that were spreading eyewitness testimony of Jesus. We see that this is a thing that could not be stamped out. And frankly, if it's just a bunch of crazy guys, if it's just 11 crazy guys that all had a group hallucination that can't happen, um, spreading this idea, there's really no way that this gets off the ground. I mean, that's a very unrealistic thing. So with all of this, I, I would would really implore you to believe, and I know most of you guys probably already believe, but if, if you don't, you know, hopefully this is encouraging to your faith. If you do believe, maybe you have friends that have some of these kind of questions. Whatever, Christianity is the most logically coherent and historically consistent worldview that there is. There really, I, I realize I am a man of faith. Okay, I, my, my I do have faith. I have to believe in some things that I cannot see. But we are all in that position. Okay, there's nobody that's able to have perfect evidence for every single thing that they believe. What I am saying is that Christianity has far better evidence for it than any other worldview, hands down. And so I honestly believe that it takes more faith to be agnostic, atheist, um, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever it may be. I honestly believe it takes more faith than it does to be Christian because we have so many facts that are on our side. If you don't accept the resurrection, you are left with a lot of unanswerable questions. Why was the tomb empty? Why did the lives of the disciples change so much? How was Christianity able to spread so effectively against all odds before it was adopted by those in political power? I have not found any skeptic that has even close to reasonable answers for these questions. And so that's just something to chew on. Now, um, if the resurrection really did happen, why is that so significant? Why is it so important to us? There's a lot of reasons, but I'll give you, I'll give you three main ones. First off, the resurrection means that Jesus is alive, okay? Romans 8.34 says this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. When we worship Jesus, we worship a God who is not dead, but one who is alive. This is very significant, okay? Christianity is not a set of old dry rules. It's not a live your best life by practicing this kind of stuff, although it will, I mean, your life will be blessed and will go better by following the principles that are laid out in the Bible just because there's good wisdom there. But the fact of the matter is we serve a living and active God. He's different, right? You go to the Old Testament, there's a, there's a point in Isaiah where he's mocking these idols that have ears but can't hear, they have eyes but can't see, they have mouths but can't speak. We, have, we serve a living God. He has ears and hears, he has eyes and sees, he has a mouth and speaks. We serve a living God. We have a relationship with him. And it says that he is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He, he, he wasn't defeated on the cross right? The, the, the penalty of sin is death, and Jesus experienced that because he experienced the curse of sin, but he rose. He conquered it. He's greater than death, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. He's praying for us. Jesus is for us. He's alive and speaking for us. That's huge. We have an advocate before the, before the Father. Our advocate is God himself. How awesome, makes a huge difference for us. If Jesus simply died and that was it, the whole idea of him being God in the flesh, that argument takes a serious hit. But he didn't. He's alive. And so when he tells us at the end of Matthew 28, which I'll probably get into some next week, but when he tells us, surely I'm with you always even to the end of the age, we can believe him because he's alive and he's able to be there. Second, um, The resurrection shows us that Jesus' sacrifice was worthy, that he was the real deal. Okay, listen to what Paul preached in Acts chapter 17. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is our proof that Jesus is the real deal. He is everything that he said he was. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, guess how we know we can trust that statement? God rose him from the dead. If God chooses to raise you from the dead, I think he's confirming everything that you had to say. And so we can trust the words of Jesus. We know that he's the real deal. We know that when he says he's the Savior, that he actually is. Here's the thing, too. We know that his payment for our sin went through. The check cleared, okay? Think of the resurrection in some ways as a receipt, right? Uh, When when Jesus went to die on the cross, the the wrath of the Father was being poured out on him. All the sin that we've committed, all the wrong that we've done, the punishment that we deserve, Jesus was saying, I'm going to take that upon myself, That's why I'm going to die, even though I've never sinned, even though I shouldn't be under this curse, even though I've never done anything wrong, I'm going to take your sin upon me and and let the Father's wrath be poured out on the cross. And so that's what he does. And as he lays in that tomb for three days, we don't know if it worked or not, do we? Maybe he was just, you know, just just as, as the women were coming, thinking that they were just going to put some perfume on his body. They, they don't know if it worked, right? Maybe he, was, maybe he succumbed to death just like all the rest of us. Maybe we really don't have hope. Maybe we die and that's all there really is. Maybe this debt can't actually be paid. But the resurrection proves that it was. It was paid. This is our receipt. Yes, the, 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 the check went through. Uh, the, the debt has been paid. You are forgiven. The resurrection is our proof of that. So this means that we can, can rejoice in knowing that we have been saved and we've been saved by Jesus. We can live in grace, right? This has both eternal and uh, implications for us and it has temporal implications for us. The eternal implications are this. We know that when we die, it's not the end and that we're going to raise raised from the dead as well with Christ. We're going to get to dwell with him because our sin has been paid for. Uh, but here's, here's the thing. It also has implications for us in this life. Because if Jesus has paid our debt, then what does that mean that we have to do to pay it? Nothing. It's already been taken care of. How do you pay a debt that's already been paid? You see, I I think that we, we get this mentality sometimes that God saves us initially And then we have to go and and work out everything else to kind of keep that salvation, to kind of make sure God's pleased with us. Yeah, thanks for getting me off to a good start. It's like like he kind of gave us the push on the swing, but we got to keep our legs pumping and get going, you know, whatever it may be. But here's the deal. The, the, The payment was made in full on the cross. And our obedience in, in and in running after Jesus and walking with him, it's not because we have to finish off whatever extra debt we accumulate that wasn't covered by the cross. Our, our, walk, our, our fellowship with God, our walking in obedience, that's done in response to the new life that we've been given. You've literally become a new person. You're learning to love righteousness and hate sin. You're learning to love God and, and, and die to this world. But your debt has been paid. Man, if if there's nothing else you come away with from this morning, I hope it's that. That you know your debt has been paid by Jesus and the resurrection proves that. Finally, why the resurrection is so important. It gives us a foretaste of what is to come. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming those who belong to Christ. Okay, this 1 Corinthians 15 is an amazing chapter on the resurrection. Uh, I encourage you to read it on your own at home, but I had to just pull this portion out here to kind of give you a good idea of what I'm trying to get at, which is this. Paul's saying, hey, First off, he was combating this idea. Some people were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. He's saying, dude, if there's no resurrection from the dead, that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead and that means our whole faith is worthless. That means we're still in our sins. We have no receipt. that the, the, the payment for our debt worked. We're still in our sins. We're dead. We have no hope. We should be pitied more than all men. That's what he says should happen if, we, if the resurrection didn't happen. But he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. This means, imagine that you're a farmer right? Uh, you, you're waiting for your crops to grow, and there's some of them that start to sprout up more than others, right? You, those are your first fruits. They're the beginning that show you, oh, okay, cool. I, I, I got my first of my crops. This is a good indication of what's going to happen with the rest of my crops. And so Paul is saying here, Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the first fruits. So we know that as he rose from the dead, he, he's the, the first of that crop. We're gonna, that's going to happen to us too, Okay, We're going to have a resurrection. I think that as Christians, a lot of time, we don't understand the resurrection very well. We understand the resurrection of Jesus, but we get confused about this idea of the the Christian theology of the resurrection, because I think most of us grow up believing, oh, I die, and then I kind of just become a spirit that lives in heaven. Um, Now, what happens between when you die and when you get your physical body at the resurrection? I'm not sure. Maybe there is some kind of spirit thing. I really don't know. It's kind of a mystery to me, but... Here's what I do know. There will be a day of judgment when we will be, we will raise from the dead. We will receive a resurrection body, a physical body, okay? Um, And and he's saying the way that this happened with Jesus, it happened to him first. It's going to happen to us too who believe in him. And as he's saying, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through man. So death, sin, death entered our road, who? Through one man, Adam, okay? But he's saying, guess what? Just the, the way that one man was able to have that much power and that much influence on, on bringing sin into the world, one man is able to have so much power and so much influence that by his death and resurrection, he can extend that to all people as well. He has the power to give that to all people as well for each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you can look at the resurrection of Jesus, and you can know that same thing is going to happen to me. This is what we get to rejoice in, that we've been given eternal life, that we will be raised from the dead. And guess what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? He didn't just raise and, and walk around indefinitely forever on the earth, but then he ascended to the Father, right? He goes, he dwells with the Father. He says he's preparing a place for us. So a, as we raise, what are we going to get to do? We're going to get to dwell with the Father as well. And there's a beautiful picture of what that's going to look like in Revelation. I'm not going to read it now, but the, uh, you, you get the idea. Man, we have a great hope because of the resurrection. We have a great expectation. And this is what we talk about when we talk about eternal life. So man, as we look at this foretaste, let us be people that celebrate, right? Let us be people that live knowing that we're going to resurrect, knowing that that this life is not all there is. When we die, it's not the end. There is hope afterwards. There's hope for your friends that are outside of Christ. If they come to Christ, they can resurrect too. And man, let us be people that go and carry that message the same way that the disciples did, right? Right? It, they, as, as they went and saw Jesus, what happened? They went from being people that hid together in a room to going out and they preached everywhere. I've, I've read to you about all these disciples and all the different ways they died. Most of those dudes were dying in far off places, places like Ethiopia and India when they started out in Jerusalem, okay? So man, let us carry that message. And here's the cool thing. We know that we're gonna rise from the dead one day, but, but God has already given us new life. He's already creating that within us. Man, we read about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. See, those kind of things, those things start to be built up in us. Man, the the old self, the the selfishness, the lust, the pride, the worry, the the self-doubt, all these kind of things, those can start to be weeded out, right? Because that's not gonna be part of who we are as resurrected people. So why not start living more like resurrected people right now? God's given us the spirit. We can start walking in this right now and continue on into eternity. Man, we serve an awesome God. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we love you and uh, we just thank you so much for who you are. Um, we thank you for the resurrection, Lord. We're able to rejoice over it. We're able to celebrate that, that you are a God who raises from the dead, that you did that with Jesus and you're going to do it with us. God, we pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. Um, bring us closer to you, Lord. I pray for our friends that don't know you, for our family that don't know you, Lord. Even uh, we pray that you would break through in their hearts. Uh, God, even some of the things that we learned this morning about how we can trust in the resurrection, I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to share those with others that don't know you. We love you, God. We thank you for who you are. We lift up this prayer in your son's awesome name. Amen.